Well, hello, and welcome to the ISTSS Distance Education Podcast Series. My name is Kelly Myrich, and I am your host today for our podcast, What Do I Do Now? Maneuvering Roadblocks When Providing Trauma-Focused Intervention. I am a clinical psychologist and director of the National Center for PTSD's Mentoring Program. I am joined today by my esteemed colleague, Dr. Tara Golovsky. Hello, Tara. Hi, Kelly. I'm delighted to be here talking about one of our favorite topics. Absolutely. Now, if you don't know, Tara is wonderful, and she serves as the director for the Women's Sciences Division of the National Center for PTSD uh, and is a clinical psychologist researcher who has done a lot of work in the area that we're going to be talking about today. So we are both excited to dive in um, and start this discussion, uh, and it is our hope that in this episode we are able to discuss some of the more commonly raised challenges and hopefully offer some practical suggestions for providers. Sound good, Tara? Sounds great. Great. So to get us started, uh, I just wanted to set the stage a little for why we decided to talk specifically about roadblocks to trauma-focused interventions for PTSD. At this point, if you weren't aware, there have been several decades of empirical support for interventions that focus more directly on trauma processing, which is sort of what we're referring to when we say trauma-focused interventions. Uh, and we know that several of our clinical practice guidelines now strongly recommend these trauma-focused interventions. However, despite this evidence, we also are very aware that there are realistic challenges when offering trauma-focused interventions in everyday practice. You know, personally, um, as we were talking about this, this topic, I, I came to that understanding that the nature of treating PTSD can really be complicated by the actual expected presence um, of avoidance and emotional distress. Um, Tara, I know you and I have had many discussions about this. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to comment on that. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, that's that's the difficulty in treating PTSD is that avoidance is just really the hallmark symptom of PTSD in many ways. Right. And, you know, many clinicians recognize that, you know, it, on a good day, the balance for a provider and a client um, between that desire to really avoid, right, and that's part of the presentation, but also approach the trauma um, and treatment can be extremely difficult. Um, and we know that, you know, not just avoidance as a symptom, but additional factors can really add up and create much bigger roadblocks during treatment. And these roadblocks, um, as we'll call them today, you know, could certainly include symptom presentations like avoidance, um, but other clinical complexity as well, um, as well as provider and logistic issues. So, we know that avoidance is a symptom of PTSD and also a potential roadblock, as we'll call them, um, that can show up during treatment um, in the form of non-attendance, treatment non-engagement, just to name a few. Tara, how can therapists address this avoidance effectively to ensure that clients are actually getting the treatment? Yeah, it's a great question and I think one of our biggest challenges. Um, so when we're administering these trauma-focused treatments, um, you know, we're really asking our patients to do exactly the thing that they most do not want to do. You uh -huh. know, think about and talk about the worst thing that, that ever happened to them. Um, and it's understandable that patients really don't want to do this. Um, on paper, not thinking about really bad stuff just sounds like a solid plan. 
But when we think about PTSD, this avoidance is really not working. It's just so big, we can't just sweep it into the corners of our mind um, because then it tends to emerge in all kinds of ways, like the symptoms you were talking about, intrusive thoughts and nightmares and flashbacks. So our trauma-focused therapies really require that we break through that avoidance, that patient engage with that trauma memory, and and that's exactly um, what you're saying, is that that can be really hard. Um, I think the thing to keep in mind when we're um, administering trauma-focused therapies is that engaging in the trauma memory in therapy is very different than being triggered by memories of the trauma outside of the therapy. Good point. So, like, in that therapy room, right, that patient is intentionally approaching that memory, intentionally recalling the event versus being blindsided by it. I think that's incredibly important, and I think particularly when talking with both clients and providers, you know, there's this sort of idea that trauma-focused treatment is sort of, you know, shoving this thing in your face that you otherwise could successfully avoid, and the reality is that's not what's happening. Trauma-focused treatment is actually helping them systematically and within their own sort of control be able to deal with something that's going to pop up whether or not they, they choose to engage in trauma-focused treatment. That's right. You know, the, the idea that it's very different than the actual experience, there's a, there's a safe person with you. You're in a safe room um, as you're reengaging with that trauma memory. And, it, and so the idea that thinking about your trauma can be re-traumatizing it is really not that accurate because of those Mm -hmm. important differences. The patient is safe talking about the therapy with their therapist, and that, of course, is very different from the very real danger that the patient experienced during the actual traumatic event. I'm glad you brought up safety, Um, and it's it's a little related to the the question I wanted to pose to you, but, you know, I I think it, it impacts when providers look and conceptualize, you know, treatment for clients with PTSD that have additional clinical complexities, um, which I'll I'll sort of define as, you know, comorbidities, maybe suicidality. That's where the safety came in for me. Um, But other physical conditions and this idea that, you know, the more complex the the issues and the presentation of the client, the the more of a roadblock that is for them to really engage in trauma-focused treatment. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. PTSD rarely occurs in isolation. It comes with a bunch of other stuff, um, making it more and more complex to treat. But the good news is is that our trauma-focused treatments are actually pretty robust, meaning that we have developed and tested these therapies across all different kinds of patient populations and included patients with all kinds of co-occurring disorders and conditions. And we really have found that PTSD can be successfully treated, you know, even when these types of concerns are on board. And the concerns can be profound. Um, You know, a few years back, you'll remember this project. Um, I was working with folks in community mental health in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. High rates of trauma experienced by their patient population. They were wondering if I could implement an evidence-based treatment for PTSD right there in their clinics. So, of course, I said, sure. And of course, and then they described the challenges on their patients' plates. And in this particular cohort, everybody had co-occurring diagnosis of severe mental illness, most typically bipolar or psychotic disorders. Most were homeless. 
Most also had co-occurring drug and alcohol use disorders. Many were illiterate, and all of them had been diverted from jail to participate in the program. And so the challenges were daunting at first, and we absolutely needed to be creative and make modifications to those protocols when necessary. But the bottom line is we were able to successfully implement a trauma-focused therapy, even given this burden, and I mean, we really moved the needle for the majority of those patients, and, and that's now a, a published study, so folks are able to, to hear more about it if you're interested in that type of work. But it taught me that we absolutely can administer CPT, PE, EMDR, all these kinds of treatments that we know to have efficacy in, in challenging populations. So in listening to you, I'm, I'm thinking of some providers that I've spoken with, and I could easily hear them responding to your statement with, absolutely, Tara said that we, you know, we should modify, we should add to, and do whatever we need to add to these treatments to make sure that they're palatable for these complex presentations. Is that what you want to communicate? Yeah, well, that's the million-dollar question, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Tell me more about these modifications. Mm -hmm. um, when do I know when? and how to modify it. And how do I exactly. know if I've modified so much that I can't even recognize this therapy anymore? Uh -huh. So these are exactly the kinds of questions that I grapple with as a clinician and also as a clinical trialist. And in fact, you know well, having written some of these trials with me, that every clinical trial that I've conducted and published has truly been inspired by a patient or some number of patients sitting across from me in the therapy room who the manual, as written, did not present a perfect fit. And so the question for me is always, this is a clearly effective protocol. This is a clearly effective therapy, or I would not be administering this to someone with PTSD. My question is, can we do this better? Mm -hmm. And so I have this really luxurious position of being able to actually empirically test that, um, and one of the things that I did, for example, was to say, hey, do we need just 12 sessions? What happens if people are done earlier? Who am I to say, oh, but wait, it, you know, in my clinical judgment, you need to actually stay longer? Mm -hmm. Or if people are not quite done yet, why don't we give them a few extra sessions and help um, to really move that needle towards recovery? What if there's an emergency during session? What if there's an emergency between sessions? Is it appropriate to take a time out, or am I really compromising that patient's progress? So these are some of the things that we actually empirically tested, and we were able to further develop the manual based on these types of premises. Which is great, and I think a message that a lot of clinicians don't necessarily hear when we talk about trauma-focused treatments, and particularly those that sort of have a protocol. You know, I know, having been supervised by you at one point in my career, that, you know, you really reinforced as sort of a practical skill that even when you're doing a protocol, you still have to conceptualize your case and do that in an ongoing way. Like, we need to assess, we need to monitor, make decisions based on that information, and then resume the treatment. And that's a, a clear thing that I think I hear in your message is that it is important to recognize when we need to make differences, but we need to assess, 
to make those and inform those. And ultimately, the key is there has to be a point you resume the treatment and get back to that work. That's right. Um, you know, and, and so I absolutely do not have all of the answers for my own patients, much less for everybody else's clinical cases. But I really you know, rely on my colleagues to, to help me to understand, you know, what's happening in the therapy room. Does this warrant a break? Does this warrant a divergence from the protocol? But but I'm, I'm, I absolutely hear you when you say come back to the trauma-focused work because if yeah. you don't, I've seen too many patients who come in years later and say, I did try this at one point, but um, it didn't work, or my therapist told me that I wasn't ready for this, or my therapist and I agreed that, that this wasn't um, the best route. And, and, and that's good, that, and that might have been absolutely accurate, and I'm glad that they came back. But I worry about all of the folks that are patients who hear that message and don't come back to therapy. Right. So, so I know we could talk more about this, but uh, I think that the general take-home is that, you know, we know avoidance is present, but that it can actually be addressed in the course of these treatments um, thoughtfully. And ultimately, that it shouldn't prevent the provision of trauma-focused interventions. And similarly, right, these clinical complexities, of which we could talk way more about, don't necessarily need to prevent the provision of trauma-focused interventions. And that creativity um, is still absolutely a core component of providing these more manualized, empirically supported trauma-focused treatments. Absolutely correct. I completely agree. Excellent. All right. So uh, I wanted to make sure we also address another angle because we talked a little bit about sort of things that obviously can present as roadblocks maybe during treatment. But we also know that we have a pretty big roadblock um, about getting people into treatments, maybe in part to some of these you know, thoughts and beliefs that people have about these, these treatments. But you know, we know that having a treatment that works does not automatically result in clients getting that treatment in practice. You know, there's, there's several client and therapist factors that have been highlighted in the literature, um, but ultimately we can sort of wheedle it down, at least for our discussion today, to, to one pretty consistent finding, and that's that both clients and certain therapists have sort of a fear of the tolerability of these treatments, um, and specifically that the, the tolerability or the, the maybe impact on symptom presentation worsening that the symptoms worsening will ultimately, ultimately, excuse me, lead to poorer functioning. You know, I, I think one of the ways that I've heard this discussed um, by both clients and providers is that they, they will, will indicate that they don't believe the client is ready. Uh, I use that word in air quotes um, as a reason to, you know, delay or potentially even avoid initiation of trauma-focused treatments. What are we really talking about, Tara, when we say that clients aren't ready? It's an excellent question, and I think um, different patients and different providers would have different answers. Um, I think that one of the more difficult challenges in treating PTSD is, is really separating out that concept of true readiness, and really what we're talking about is lack of readiness um, from PTSD avoidance, you know, which we just um, talked about. You know, all of us as therapists really want to respect the fact that patients have the ultimate right and authority to determine their own course of clinical care. I don't think mm -hmm. anyone would argue that. 
However, we also know that we, the therapists, you know, as the experts on PTSD in the room, we have an obligation to offer our professional opinion on the best course of treatment for the PTSD that, that's bringing the person into our office to begin with. So most of those patients aren't coming into therapy, you know, chomping at the bit to begin their treatment journey. Some, <laughs> right, some do. Some are ready to go. Right. But most patients are not especially eager to talk about the worst thing that ever happened to them. Um, most patients will not simply just state, um, this is going to be really hard for me and I really don't want to think about my trauma, although you know, some, some will. Instead, what we see is escalating anxiety. We hear uh-huh. concerns, like the one you mentioned, I can't tolerate this. We see other types of expression other than kind of thoughts and, and, you know, verbal language. We see things like big emotion. You know, some people call that affect dysregulation. You know, big anger. We see maladaptive coping skills and strategies like um, skipping sessions, coming late. Drug use, alcohol use are good examples. Self-harms, a great example. Binging, Internet porn, you name it. We see... Um, stuff kind of ratchet up. Mm -hmm. And as we observe these increases, you know, we naturally grow concern. Um, But I maintain that these increases in distress might not be evidence of a patient's lack of readiness to begin a trauma-focused therapy. And instead, quite the contrary, the escalations that we see in distress at the beginning of the therapy actually really increase my efforts to engage this patient in the process. Hmm. Really, as as soon as possible, it becomes my utmost priority to decrease this pain that I'm observing. So when we talk about... an interesting perspective. Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, as, as you were saying, that kind of case conceptualization is so critical. If the PTSD, right, we're we're nearing that trauma memory, so the PTSD symptoms as we get closer to the trauma memory is causing this escalation in distress and pain, then to me it's all the more reason to treat the PTSD because that's the cause. Right. Right. Right? So, yeah. So So, – go ahead. I'm sorry. That's all right. I'm I'm, I'm aware of time, but in two ways. One, because we're quickly going to run out of time to talk, which I wish we had hours to talk about this. Um, but also, as you were talking about all this ramping up, it made me think about some of the emerging evidence for shortening our standard course of treatment. And instead of sort of having clients, you know, trying to push through all of this ramping up and all of this distress, but doing it over the course of once a week, that we're hearing more about these mass models or this idea of, you know, getting treatment in faster that you can sort of push through all of that in a way that actually results in the, the client and the provider having to really spend less time sorting through it and getting more towards the working through it. What do you think about these newer mass models as an approach? You know, I think the idea is just phenomenal. Um, I remember some years ago um, getting calls from, for example, parents of college students um, my daughter was raped, and she's coming home from spring break. Can you help her? And and you know, or or women that were in a, a homeless shelter, and I have you know I have shelter for this period of time. Can you help me? 
And the answer then was, no, I, I just don't have enough time. You know, this, this protocol is, you know, a couple of sessions a week for, you know, X number of weeks. Mm-hmm. So this concept is amazing. And I had the opportunity to um, dip my toe into it uh, recently with um, a number of women who suffer from PTSD secondary to intimate partner violence. And um, we were able to um, test this intervention in a course of over a course of five days, 12 sessions, um, and the results absolutely blew my mind. Um, and this is consistent with the publications that we're seeing coming out with these evidence-based protocols and these trauma-focused therapies right. that, yeah, they really are showing great results. And the piece that was really cool for me to observe was that there wasn't that opportunity for decay between sessions and that time right. for avoidance to build back up. So I think it's really promising. Well, and it's it's astounding not just to hear about the positive outcomes, but also to see how low the dropout rates are, which I think there might be something to this that if we can get people in and we can shorten that time frame that they're sort of working through that distress, we may see some of these models be even more successful. I, agree. I realize. We have so many more things we could certainly talk about, and I know a lot of this information is also going to be highlighted uh, at our ISTSS meetings, but I, I have to wrap us up, unfortunately, today, Tara, and thank you so much for being willing to talk about these topics, and you know, I hope our listeners today at least started to wrap their head a little bit around um, some of these things will get in the way, but hopefully can maybe take a different look at them um, and think about how maybe we might want to do more approaching of these trauma-focused treatments versus staying away from them out of fear of too many roadblocks. So thank you so much, Tara. It was my pleasure. I had a blast. All right. Well, thank you, and I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast today.